me say happy Father's Day to our dads. And let me challenge you men. This will be your only challenge for me uh, by way of uh, reference to Father's Day that you're going to get. Um, but I want to encourage you men, you fathers, to talk to your children about Christ. First and foremost, that's your responsibility to talk to your kids about Jesus. And secondly, it's the church's responsibility. But God has given them to you first and so appreciative to our dads who tell their children about Christ and tell them the gospel. And let me encourage you to keep doing that. So that's my challenge to you fathers who are here. And if you're a grandfather, do the same. Talk to your grandchildren about Jesus. Now then, go ahead and take your Bibles and take them, uh, open them up with me to Luke chapter 11 and find chapter, four, uh, chap, chapter 11, verses 14 through 26. The title of today's sermon is Stop Wearing Makeup. It is not a message for women, and uh, it's not a message for men who shouldn't be wearing makeup, uh, but... Hopefully, as we get to the end of this sermon, you'll understand the title, Stop Wearing Makeup. I grew up in a church culture like most of you in this room, where being a Christian simply meant walking an aisle, praying with the pastor, being baptized, and then life as normal. Just kind of going back into the status quo. That form of Christianity, however, is found nowhere in Scripture. In fact, Luke is teaching us, as we've been going through this series of sermons in Luke, what it means to be a disciple. And that simply means that word disciple is a, is a catch word for follower of Christ. What it means to follow Jesus Christ. He was writing to a man named Theophilus, and he was showing this man what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. When we started this series, if you remember, I told you there were three reasons that Luke wrote this letter. Hopefully you've got that in your head, but if you don't, I want to keep reminding you ever so often as we go through this. First and foremost, Luke is writing to Theophilus to tell him who Jesus is. The first several chapters, every chapter is dripping with the, de the deity of Christ, but the first several chapters, Luke wants Theophilus to know Jesus is God. And so that's the theological framework, that Jesus is God. Secondly, he wants Theophilus to know that he can have confidence in Christ. Because he is God, you can have confidence in him. You can trust in him. Thirdly, Luke is writing, so that Theophilus will know how to follow Jesus Christ. I want you to hear me. You cannot follow the Christ you don't know, and you will not follow the Christ you do not trust. You need to know who Christ is, and you need to know that you can trust Him, and the outworking of that, the subsequent action of that, is following Jesus. If He is God, if I do trust Him, I will follow Him. And so, Luke is writing to Theophilus, which means beloved of God. And so by extension, he's writing to all the beloved of God, to his church and to his churches, on how to know who Christ is, how to trust him, and how to follow Christ. You and I can actually live out Christ every single day of our lives, and we're called to. That is what this means. 
to be a disciple of Christ. Ryan and I were only married for a few, uh, well, I don't even know we were married for a year. We were married for a very short period of time. I was finishing up my fifth year of electrical apprenticeship, about to get my electrical license. And God had saved, he, he, he showed his grace to my wife and she was, uh, she was saved at, uh, shortly thereafter, uh, we, we were married. I don't know, I'm, I don't know the timeline. She might have to either correct me later or adjust me as I'm telling this story. But shortly after God had gloriously saved my wife, he began to deal with me about ministry. And I knew it. I knew that God was preparing my heart. I know that I was secularly going in a different direction. I was wanting to be, I was going to be a third generation electrician. I wanted just to follow on in uh, the family tradition there. And that's what I was planning to do. But God just began to stir in my heart a desire for ministry. So one night we were laying in bed and I just began to fill my wife out. I began to ask her, I said, if, if God calls me to be a pastor, um, what would you think about that? And she told me that if that's what God's calling me to do, that's what you got to do. I'm with you. And so I kind of increased the severity of what I was talking about a little bit in the next question, and it was framed something like this. If God calls me to ministry, you know, I might have to move to another state. What would you think about leaving your mom, leaving our family, leaving, leaving our home? Her reply, if God is calling us to do that, I'm, I'm with you. I had to really test her. So I asked her, I said, okay, if God called me to Ghana, West Africa, and we've got to live in a tent, would you go? And she looked at me and she said, if that's what God calls you to do, I'll follow. I'll go with you. And you know, my wife has followed me all over the place for the last 20 years. Uh, we have uh, been to um, Arkansas, Missouri, Tennessee, Louisiana, Mississippi, and uh, we even took a trip to Africa. And my wife and I believed back in 2013 that God may actually be calling us to go to Africa. And she was willing to go. And she is still willing to follow me today. But my wife will tell you that following Christ comes with a cost. It's not as simple as we make it out to be. I've had to pack, my wife has had to pack up her house nine times. And she's still faithful and still willing to go with the Lord. Now, when we unpacked at the house that we're at right now, she said, God told me this is it. <laughs> this is it. So I don't know exactly what that means, but I think if I go, she might be staying at that house. I don't know. But she has, she's a testimony in what Luke, I think, is trying to communicate to us. That following Christ comes with a cost. I think this is what Luke is saying here through these passages. It's not just walking an aisle, praying a prayer, being baptized, and life is normal. Easy believism is not biblical Christianity. And we've been taught that. We've been taught that all you got to do is just say a prayer and that's it. But when you follow Jesus, you need to know what the Bible tells us about that. It means that you are changing direction 
from one direction to another. You're going in an opposite direction now. It's a change that has been wrought in your life by the power and grace of Jesus Christ. Discipleship is a life of prayer. It's a life of obedience. It's a life of service. It's a life of humility. It's a life of trust. It's a life of commitment. And this isn't just for preachers. This is for all of us. But something else discipleship is, it is living in opposition to Satan himself. If you are following Jesus, you are going to be opposed by evil. You will be opposed by Satan. You will be opposed by the evil system and corruption that is in this world. It will stare you in the eyes and oppose you. You'll find yourself in many crossroads. And following Jesus is not easy whenever you are faced with having to make decisions that could potentially lead to persecution or harm to self. Yet God has called us to follow Him. Satan wants you to live in fear. When Satan opposes us, he he wants us to live in fear of following Christ. But let me say this. If you are standing in the presence and power of God, you have nothing to be afraid of. I mean nothing to be afraid. Even death itself should not scare you. If you are standing in the presence and power of Jesus Christ. In our story today... We see a man who is mute. That means he is unable to speak, but there's a reason he is unable to speak. I don't believe he was born that way. By all indication of the text, he became this way because he was possessed by a mute demon. In other words, there was a demon that had possessed this man's body that was holding his tongue captive. So we see this man is released. He is delivered from this demon. And then we're going to see after amazement, By the people, there's rejection of Jesus as the Christ. So let's begin reading in Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 14. Go ahead and stand with me and let's read, follow along with me as we read this text. Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 14, says, Now he, talking about Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the, de- the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand. For you say that I cast out demon, demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Speaking about the disciples. Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit had gone out, of a, uh, when, and when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. 
And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would open our ears, open our eyes, open our hearts to receive your word this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. We do not know how long this man had been possessed by a demon. Maybe 10 years, maybe 20 years, maybe 30, 40 years. We don't know a lot of details. What we do know, though, is that he was mute for long enough that the people knew him. They knew his condition. They knew something was wrong because whenever Jesus did deliver him from this demon, he spoke and they were amazed. They were amazed, according to what we see from Luke, at the effects of what had happened from this demon being cast out. But some questioned. They were skeptical. Immediately, Luke points us to why Jesus was rejected by the people over this. We see this in the first two verses. It says, but some of them said, uh, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. They rejected Jesus on the basis that they concluded that his power was from Satan himself, the Beelzebul, the prince of demons. And so they saw this as something satanic, that Jesus was doing something that was under the influence and power of Satan himself. But let me just say this, because we hear this, we read this, and we're just like, uh, man, they totally missed it. And, 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 but this really speaks to the heart of our culture. Let me, let me say this very clearly. Just because you see someone perform a miracle doesn't mean it's from God, right? So they're not necessarily wrong to speculate, to be skeptical about what's going on, because they have been taught their whole life from the Old Testament to test the spirits. In other words, whenever you see a sign, whenever you see a miracle, you don't just accept that this is from God. How many of you remember back in Exodus, whenever Moses was leading the children of Israel out of Egypt? Remember, there were some magicians. And these magicians, they were able to perform miracles. Remember that? Moses did a miracle or brought in a plague and they also did a remarkable thing. And so just because a miracle is performed doesn't necessarily mean that it is from God. Satan is a worker of miracles too. He is powerful. He in fact is the strong man that is talked about in this text. He is very strong. And so they were right in one way that they were skeptical but we need to also understand that just as in the Old Testament that God gave them instructions to test the Spirit, He also gave a litmus test. And you know what the litmus test was? If you really want to know if a prophet is of the Lord, 100% of everything He says must be accurate and right. Not 99%, not 90%, not almost right. You, you know one of the things that amazes me, we have a lot of so-called prophets today, right? They even write books. We have had multiple books written about the coming of Christ. Christ is going to return, or 82 reasons that Jesus is going to come back in 18, 1982. I mean, there's all these predictions and all these prophecies, and they're all wrong. 
and people still follow them. God says if somebody is wrong once about a prophecy, they are not of God. Everything that the Old Testament had said about Jesus, 100% of it, all the prophecies had come true in Christ. Everything that, all the predictions, all the prophecies were finding their yes and their amen in Jesus Christ. 100%. So they missed it. They were not wrong to question Jesus, but they were wrong in their conclusion. They absolutely missed it. And they were not just skeptical, they were also blind. Notice it says that some kept seeking from him a sign for heaven, from heaven. This blows my mind. Folks, he had been healing the sick. He had been raising dead people to life. What else do you need? I mean, they were just like, what sign would be given to anybody to convince them? And I'm convinced of this. If somebody ever says, well, if God wants to really prove himself to me, he's got to show me a miracle. He's got to show me some sign. He already has. He already has. And so they were blind. They were skeptical. They were missing the mark. They were missing the point. And he says in verse 17 through 18, but he knowing their thoughts. You know, the only way that he could have ever known their thoughts is to be God. He knew their thoughts thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. I want you to notice that first of all, Jesus attacked their skepticism and their blindness by logic. He just presents to them a logical argument. Essentially, Jesus is telling them that their conclusion doesn't even make sense. Because he's saying, if I am casting out demons, and I am the prince of demons, I'm at war with my own army. In other words, it doesn't even make logical sense that you would say that I'm from Beelzebul. Every kingdom that is divided against itself is a wasteland. It's a desert. It's, it has no power. It has no vitality. Every house that is divided will fall. It has no power. It has no vitality. And Jesus is showing them that their logic is senseless. Because if Satan is divided against himself, his own kingdom will fall. His house will not be able to stand. It makes no sense that Satan would work that way. Look at verse 19 through 20. He says, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom... Do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. I want you to notice the phrase, the finger of God. You see that there in your text? What Jesus is doing by pointing this out is telling them that judgment has come. The kingdom of God has come, therefore, the king of this earth, the king of all creation, the ruler and the judge is here. But the express phrase, the finger of God, is an expression of Old Testament judges, uh, Old Testament judgment. I don't know if you have a cross-reference Bible. If you don't know what that is, a cross-reference Bible is something that either has a center column in your Bible, or it has uh, little uh, FPNs down at the bottom of your Bible. And you'll notice a number or a letter that's there beside this text, this verse. And a cross-reference will show you those three places in the Old Testament where the finger of God is mentioned. 
It's mentioned in Exodus 8 and verse 19 when Moses brought the plagues of the flies or the gnats. Remember Janus and Jambres? They could do all of these other miracles, but they could not bring in the flies and the gnats. They couldn't replicate that plague. And do you remember what they said? It says it there in the text. It says, we can't do this because this is by the finger of God. It was judgment. It's also mentioned in two other places in Exodus 31, 18 and Deuteronomy 9 and verse 10, but it's within the same context because it was at the completion of the Ten Commandments on the two tablets of stone that Moses said that these commandments are given to us by the finger of God. Again, the Word of God will act as a, as a form of judgment against us. It shows us our sin. It shows us where we are wrong. And so by Jesus using this phrase, he is telling them that judgment has come. The finger of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, he is saying that if you persist in your unbelief, you will be judged. You are condemned already. This is exactly what Jesus said in John chapter 3 and verse 18. It says, whoever believes in him... Notice, in John chapter 3 and verse 16, there's a different set of whosoevers than chapter 3 and verse 18. There's another set of whosoevers. Whoever believes in Him will not perish, but whoever does not believe is condemned when? In the future? No, already. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Not only are those who reject Jesus under the judgment of God, the finger of God, they are also going to stand in the judgment of other believers. You have heard it said, you've read it on bumper stickers, and you've seen it on shirts, thou shalt not judge. And we take it completely out of context. We are not to be judgmental. We're not to snub other people, look down upon them, and cast our own opinions. But as believers, we do judge, and we will judge. We will stand as a testimony against those who do not have faith in Christ. We will stand as a testimony. In other words, there are many people who will be in church who will see the faith of God in other people, and yet they will never believe. And one day on the day of judgment, in that future judgment, there's a judgment now, but then there's that future judgment where we will stand as a testimony of the grace of God against those who do not believe. This is what he's saying here in verse 19. It says, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by who do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. There's a future tense, the consummation of this age. In other words, this age will come to an end. This life, everything we know, all this is coming to an end. It's winding down. The clock is not winding up. It is winding down. And at the consummation of this day, there will be a final judgment. You see, we are not just passive followers of Christ, are we? Presently, what do we do? We rule and we reign with Christ. Now we might suffer and we might be persecuted, we might be hated, but we rule and reign with Christ through faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, there's nothing that this world can do to me that Christ has not already overcome. So I'm ruling and reigning with Christ right now, but there's also a future ruling and reigning with Christ. 
And in that way, we will be victorious in Christ, that there will be uh, evil and sin and suffering and pain will be eliminated at that day. So Jesus is bringing all this down to this parable. He says here in verse 21, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But here's the caveat. When one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus is saying, Satan is powerful. Because Satan is the strong man. He is powerful. Don't ever get the idea that you are stronger than Satan because you are not in your own strength. You're just not. Your flesh is weak. You're weak. You'll give in in the flesh. This is why we pray. This is why we read the Bible. This is why we live filled with the Holy Spirit. This is why we trust in Christ. This is why we depend on Him. Satan is strong. But he's not stronger than Jesus. Jesus is stronger. He is the stronger one. He is the one stronger than he. And when Jesus comes, he makes war against Satan and he strips away his power and he takes away his spoil. Do you know what Satan's spoil is? Satan's spoil was me. And Jesus took me away from him out of his grip, out of the grip of evil and out of the grip of sin. That is what Jesus came to do through the power of the cross and his grace. He took away the power of the strong man because Jesus is stronger and mightier than Satan. And so just as believers are not actively or passively saved, we're active in our salvation. We are to be following, obeying, praying, and doing all of those things. This also shows us that believers are not passively lost. You're not just passively. Listen, let me tell you something. You're not riding the middle of the road. You are either for Him or you are what? Against Him. You're either going with Him or you're going opposite of Him. You're either working with Him or you're working against Him. You're either gathering or you're scattering. You are not passively saved, and you are not passively lost. You are active in either your faith, or you're active in your rebellion. You're either active in your acceptance of Christ, or you're active in your rejection. There is no, you're not born on middle ground. You were born separated from God. But by the power of God, He has overcome the strong one, the evil one. And our only hope, this is what He's saying in this passage, our only hope is in the power of Christ to overcome the power of Satan and deliver us from sin. Listen to what He says in verse 24 through 26. When the unclean spirit is going out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which... I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and it brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. Man, Jesus is giving another warning. And here's the warning. I want you to get this. The danger is not that you're going to worship Satan. 
The danger is that you're going to try to clean up your own life in the power of your own flesh. You're going to try to power your own self, to motivate yourself to be a better person, to be a good person. That's the danger. I don't see a lot of people who struggle with worshiping Satan, but I see people every day struggling to try to be a better person on their own. That's the danger. And that's what he's pointing out here. Go back to the mute man that was delivered of the demon. Here was a man who was possessed by a demon and demon cast him out. But I want you to hear me. If all this man ever received from Christ was him casting out the demon, that man is no better off if he isn't replaced with the Holy Spirit. This man is still going to hell. He's just going to hell talking. If all that ever happened to him is that he was cast, a demon was cast out, this man is no better off. And this is a challenge for us. In this story, really what it's saying that a person can be delivered of demons, this person can be delivered of addictions, this person can be delivered of, of certain vices and still be no better off than they were before. Our hope is not being delivered by demons or anything. Our hope is being filled with the gift of God, which is what he already said back up in chapter 11, the first part, the Holy Spirit. We need the Spirit of God in our life. And let's just bring the rubber to meet the pavement. You see, a person can get rid of addictions. A person can be rehabilitated. They can get off alcohol. They can get off of drugs. People who are addicted to pornography or addicted to sex or addicted to greed. The, the, the addiction to be uh, popular. The addiction to, to have fame. People can be delivered. They can be rehabilitated. But if they never have the power of Christ in their life, they've accomplished Nothing. Nothing. Y'all know I'm fascinated with Harry Emerson Fosdick. He was the most popular Baptist preacher in the early 20th century in this country. But he was liberal to the core. He was neo-liberal. A new kind of liberal. A new form of enlightenment. And here was what he did. He wanted to take Christian principles and teach them to people apart from needing Jesus Christ as their Savior. And so what he did, he came up with a form of preaching called therapeutic Christianity. And what he did on a Sunday morning, which you had to purchase tickets to get into his church, there were so many people, people would climb up into the windows to hear him preach. And what he did, he understood the gathering of the people on Sunday morning as group therapy. And he was convinced that what people really need is to just be taught the principles of Jesus Christ. He concluded that all of the teaching of Christ was good and it was really good. And so, in other words, what he would do is he would take the Bible and take away its spiritual uh, and miraculous nature and replace it with some sort of a pseudo-psychiatric uh, form of uh, communication. And what he would do is say, if you want to have a better marriage, you need to apply these Christian principles to your marriage. If you want to be a better father, you need to these Christian principles. If you want to be a better friend, if you want to be a better employee, if you want to be a better employer, if you want to be successful, apply these Christian principles. But you don't need to pray and trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior. Christless Christianity. 
therapeutic Christianity. Brothers and sisters, let me say this. If all you ever do is use Christianity and its teaching to fix your life, you have completely missed Jesus Christ. That is not the purpose. It's not just so that you can have your best life now. That you can just live and experience the, uh, the blessings of, of life by having faith. You see, the title comes from this last part. The end of verse 25, we see a phrase called put in order. You see that in the text? Finds the house, finds this person's life swept and put in order. The word in Greek is the word cosmeo. means to arrange. Whenever, many years ago, they looked into the heavens and they said cosmos. Because they saw arrangement. They saw that the stars were fixed in their places. Everything was perfectly arranged. Nothing is shifting. Nothing is moving. It's perfectly put in order. And that's where we get uh, the cosmos. The study uh, and how we, we study the cosmos. We study the universe. <laughs> But how many of you ladies know what else sounds a lot like cosmos? Cosmetics. Cosmetics. It means when you put on makeup, you're putting your face in order. You're arranging yourself. Now, I will admit, I grew up in churches and in a Christian belief that for some at least, that it was a sin to wear makeup. I've been on God's great earth for 43 years, and I'm here to tell you that I think it's a sin for some women not to wear makeup. Uh, last year, American women spent $9 billion on cosmetics, and that still wasn't enough. I'm just playing. The point is, and what is being told and communicated here in the text as Jesus is saying, if all, if, if all you ever do is cosmos, if all you ever do is put makeup on, you've changed nothing. You've changed nothing. If all you've done is swept out the house, got rid of a few things, you've done nothing. You've done nothing. You, you can only get rid of uh, you, can, you see, you can get rid of your addictions. You can get rid of laziness. You can get rid of alcohol. You can get rid of pornography. But if you do not have Jesus as your Lord, you've done nothing. In fact, he goes on to say in Luke eleven twenty six, it goes and it brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there and the last state of that person is worse than the first. What is this saying? The last state, the final state. You can, you, can get, you can get everything in order. You can live a good life, essentially. You can, you can be a good citizen. You can do things right. You can follow the cultural flow. You can go listen to motivational speakers and you can, man, you can really do it good. There's a lot of people who look really good. See, the danger isn't worshiping Satan, right? The danger is thinking that you can live in the power of your own flesh. 
and that you can clean things up, that you can just put makeup on, that you can just put it in order yourself. But there's a day coming when the final state is going to be way worse than this state. It doesn't end well in the end. It's not going to be, you're no better off. You're going to be worse in the end than in the beginning. So stop putting on makeup. Stop trying to do it on your own. You and I have been called to live in grace. We've been called to live in the power of God. Man, think about it. Think about what Christ has done. Think about the observance of baptism. It just is not an act that we're celebrating some person that's getting baptized. We're celebrating the work and the power and the grace of Jesus Christ. That's what we celebrate. What did Christ do? He saw our pathetic state. He saw that in the flesh we are powerless. He saw that we are under the deception and control of a strong one. But He has come in the power of His own nature. And He has went to that cross and He went to war with evil and He won and He stripped Satan of His power so that by grace and through faith we can enter into the very power and presence of God and be delivered not just from our sin but be infiltrated, to be infused with the Spirit of God. That is what Christ has done. Because of the cross, there ought not be any more reason to ever think that Jesus Christ came to save us to make our lives better. If Christian principles were just enough that you and I could manage money, marriages, relationships, and ourselves on our own, then why in the world did Christ ever come to down a cross? I submit to you that Jesus Christ does not save us to make our lives better. He saves us for one reason, and that is to make His grace even that much more glorious. That's why. And it's in His power and in His might and by His grace that we can be healed and find true freedom in Christ. To stop putting on makeup and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in Him and depend on Him and Him alone. Heavenly Father, I pray that You would minister to our hearts by this message. Help us to see, Lord, that we have limited strength. We can sweep our homes and we can put on a lot of makeup. But at the end of the day, Lord, if we have not received Christ into our lives as our strong Savior, our Lord, our Master, our Maker, our King, we've accomplished nothing. Lord, I pray for those deceived this morning who believe that they can live in the power of their own strength. They can take control of their own lives and rule their own destinies. They seem on the outside like they're good, but inwardly they're empty, without purpose, without meaning, without hope. I pray for those who are deceived this morning to have their eyes opened by the grace of God. And I pray for the salvation of lost souls. Even maybe some here right now, Lord, 
under the sound of my voice. Right now, perhaps even feeling the conviction in their own heart, thinking and deceived they're okay, but they're not. God, show them that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and no man can come to the Father but by you. May you get glory. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.